time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. Hey, this is Lee Balkum. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast. This is the podcast designed to help you thrive no matter what life throws your way. I'm a full-time Thrivologist, which means that I am constantly learning and studying how to thrive and how to teach people how to thrive, but I'm really only a part-time thriver, meaning that I am constantly trying to thrive better. So you and I are on this journey together. Now today, I am delighted to have a very special guest. Jack Canfield is with us. If you don't know Jack, you should. (laughs) I hope you like that pun. Um, Jack is the co-author and creator of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. He is also the author of one of my favorite books, The Success Principles. That book was just released in the 10th anniversary edition. Jack also wrote The Aladdin Factor, The Power of Focus, and many other resources. He's also featured in the video The Secret. Jack has appeared on countless radio and TV shows, including Oprah, 2020, The Today Show, and many others. More than that, Jack is just a all-around nice guy with a huge heart. His passion is teaching people to succeed and thrive. We talk about Jack's success principles, how struggles can help you learn to thrive, how to take responsibility in your life, and how to apply the formula E plus R equals O. Listen in for some life-changing information and advice. Jack, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited. You know, just before I started getting ready for this, I, I went to go find the success principles and I went to right where it always is, it was right beside my bed. So it was easy to find. I'm so glad you're here because I've talked about your stuff and uh, I'm so excited to have you talk about your stuff. And, and so it's really exciting to have you come and talk some about how to thrive. So let's just start with that and talk about your definition of a thriving life. Well, for me, the definition of a thriving life is similar to a successful life, which is what I've been writing about forever. And that is where you're, you're, you're fulfilling your purpose, you're feeling content, you are making a difference in the lives of others as well as your own. I divide life up into seven areas. There's your financial life, there's your relationships, there's your job and career, there's uh, fitness and health, there's um, you know making a difference in the lives of others. Uh, fun and recreation and what I call personal, which is just what's the stuff you want to do just because you want to do it and what's the stuff you want to own. And so if you're having relationships that are meaningful and fulfilling, and I've often said, you know, if I was blind, which I'm not, then I wouldn't be able to see anything around me. All I would know is how I feel when I'm with the other person. It wouldn't matter what they look like. And I remember having an experience. I was in Chicago in a workshop at the, I think it was a Lutheran seminary or something like that that they put on. And we had to close our eyes and mill around with keep our eyes closed. And then at a certain point, just sit down with whomever you're with and just kind of have a hand conversation, wrist to wrist hand. And I ended up laying in the lap of this woman and she was stroking my head. I opened my eyes. She was about a 65-year-old, very overweight black woman. And at the time, I was like about a 23-year-old young white guy. <laughs> and I was like... I had no idea what she looked like. I, was, I had died and gone to heaven. I said, in my normal life, I would have looked at her and just you know, walked past her. And so I think that it's that sense of inner joy and, and, and um, you know, deep satisfaction that comes from fulfilling your needs on the levels of relationship, have enough abundance so you can get good medical care and all of that, and education and be, you know, have money when you retire. Um, but also I've been focusing on what I call conscious 
uh, spending, which is, you know, I can afford to buy a $100 bottle of wine, but if I buy a $30 bottle of wine, I've got $70 I can give to a school in Africa. And so I've really been looking lately at all of my expenses and saying, okay, what brings me the, the greater satisfaction? The satisfaction of that bottle of wine lasts for a couple of hours. The satisfaction of knowing I've educated the young girl in Africa, that lasts all year or maybe a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So looking at each of these areas and saying, okay, what, what, what has to happen in that area for me to feel joy and fulfillment? And if I'm doing that, <coughs> excuse me, just getting over a cold, it doesn't matter if I'm a poet in a small A-frame living in Vermont or I'm someone running a multi-million dollar operation and training company like I am. It really, it's all uniquely, you know, to each person. And I've, I've come to say recently that success is the fulfillment of your own soul's purpose mm-hmm. and the full expression of who you are and who you're becoming. I believe the universe is evolving. Consciousness is evolving. And we are the cutting edge of that evolution. There's something that wants to be born through each of us as us, whether it's being the best chef on the planet or the best parent or the best trainer or the best podcaster, whatever it might be, is giving yourself permission to do that which is emerging and wants to happen. That's great. That's a great answer. I, I love the idea of thriving being much more than one little area. And, and I, I think your your idea of success is so much broader than a lot of people think about when they think about success. It's, you know, what do I have in my bank account and, and what can I buy? Yours is more about life purpose and that soul purpose, and uh, which kind of I know a little bit about your background. So I know that, um, you know, when people say, well, that's really easy for, you know, they name easy for you and they look at whoever it is and they say, you've just had it easy. You get all the breaks. You didn't come from the happiest of families. You didn't come from that easy background. So can you talk some about how you learned to thrive, how you how you moved into success, even with that kind of background? Sure. I grew up in West Virginia, which was the 48th worst state of education in America when there was only 48 states. I think Mississippi wasn't even as bad at that time. And uh, my dad, my first dad was an auto parts salesman after he got out of the Air Force, Uh, you know, regular old job. My stepfather, when my mom got divorced because he was violent, uh, was a, a florist and, you know, worked for his father, who was a florist. And we didn't have a lot of money. I think the house we moved into when I was a kid, it cost $18,000. It was just a little wood frame house. And both of my parents were alcoholics, and my dad would get upset and would rage when he was angry. And I used to hide. I don't know if you remember those old radios that were like, you know, as, as tall as a, the, you know, you are almost. And I used to hide in the bottom of one of those when he was drunk because would, he wouldn't find me there, or otherwise he'd strap me with a belt. And so my mother divorced him when I was six. And then I worked my way. Uh, you know, through my childhood, I had a paper route and there was a, a a park near our house where these old women would bring these old gallon apple cider jars and they would get spring water from this pump. And if you would pump the water for them, they'd give you a nickel or a dime. And I also had a wagon so I could carry two ba- two bottles back with them, you know, to their house. And the <coughs> sometimes they would give you a tip for that as well. I remember back then, if I wanted to go to a movie, I had to go make the money to do it. No one was going to do it for me. So basically, um, you know, I worked my way through that. And then I, I got to Harvard on a scholarship. I played football. I was pretty good at football player. And they needed an end at Harvard. So they, they, they let me in. I wasn't, I graduated from the half of the class at Harvard that made the top half possible. I always say that just so people know. And uh, I worked my way through college. I served breakfast. I mowed lawns on the weekends. I cleaned dorms. I cut grass for the university. And then I went to 
University of Chicago on a scholarship, but I worked on the weekends. And uh, my first teaching job, I only made $8,000 a year. And I would take the bus to work because I didn't have a car. And my rent was uh, 70 what would I pay for rent? $79 a month. Had a Murphy bed that came out of the wall. And um, you know, he had to bring the bed down to get to the clothes that were behind it. And I got $129 every couple of weeks. In the first month, or when I paid my $79, that left me $50 to live on for two weeks. I resorted to eating. Today, it would be ramen noodles. Back then, it was spaghetti noodles with tomato paste and salt and garlic, salt, and water. And so I know what it's like to not have anything. And uh, I worked my way up. And I eventually, you know, became a teacher. And then I started training other teachers. And then I became a consultant to schools. Then I wrote my first book called 100 Ways to Enhance Self-Concept in the Classroom. And, um, you know, it went from there. Now, that, that teaching position was not in um, the kind of the suburban nice school. You were, you were with a rough crowd. Yeah, I was in the inner city at Calumet High School on the south side of Chicago. It was all black with maybe seven white students uh, whose parents were ministers and refused to leave when the white flight happened. Um, and... I really, I, I had a great time as much as it was scary at times and as much as I had a really resistant group. What it really did for me is it taught me how to motivate people because I really realized they weren't motivated. And so I became more interested in how do I motivate my students to learn than I was in teaching history. <coughs> Excuse me. So basically what happened is that that's, that was what changed my career. I went to a workshop put on by the W. Clement Jesse P. Stone Foundation. Stone was worth $600 million at the time, and he had this foundation. He had a thing called the Achievement Motivation Program. How do you motivate people to achieve? And he had taken on education, especially in the underserved communities like black and Hispanic communities, to teach them these principles of success. Many of my students who were gang members then are now presidents of companies. And I still get letters and emails from them saying, you know, thank you and just had a baby and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's like, you know, God, what was that, like 45 years ago? It's amazing. And, and, you know, what's interesting to me is how some people will be in the same environment and, and feel scarred and held down. And other people see the possibilities and the options and grow. They have the resilience skills and they just kind of grow and, and take off. You, you probably went to that same workshop with a lot of other people who didn't use much of that to go anywhere. And yet you created that and, and found your foundations for happiness and success starting in that, that place. I think that's true. I always had, oh, I think part of it was my parents. You know, when I went away to college, my dad said, if you need a helping hand, look at the end of your own arm. And he, he gave me $10 and said, there won't be any more where that came from. And I mean, he wasn't being cruel. He was just being realistic. We didn't have the money. And I had uh, two younger brothers and a younger sister. And so I always, if I wanted something, I had to do it. A lot of the kids today, including my own kids, you know, they grew up with everything. And so they kind of expect it. They didn't have to work for it when they were younger. I mean, as they got older, I realized I, I made them do that. Like if one of my kids wanted uh, flying lessons. He actually got his pilot's license before he got his uh, driver's license. And he uh, came to me and said, I want to get a pilot's license. I said, well, what's the cost? He said, it costs $2,000 for the lessons and all that. I said, great. You earn the first $1,000. i will give you the next 1000 So he went out and within about a month, he had earned $1,000. And um, he got a sales job, and he got commissions, and he just crushed it. So basically, um, but a lot of kids today, we see this failure to launch where they don't get 
going. And a lot of it's because they've just had everything given to them. Yeah. Yeah. I talk about there, there are these two models of parenting. One is that the, the child's like an egg. You know, you got to protect them and keep anything from happening. And the other's like a ball. You got to teach them how to bounce. And right. a lot of what happens now, I think, takes away those opportunities to learn how to bounce that you kind of learn because you had to. Exactly. And your t- your class, they were there. I mean, they in some ways they were a rich field of taking that knowledge in because they weren't they weren't being protected. You know, those those students were on the edge and having to learn how to bounce if they were going to. Right. They had nothing and um and and they were they either they either gave up or they became criminals in a sense that that and I mean I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but I realized one day that the, the drugs in the, in the inner city, is a, it's basically a multi-level marketing system, yeah. like a network marketing company. Yeah. And so it's one of the few jobs that's available to a young kid yeah. in order to get the things they see on TV and that they want and so forth. But fortunately, I was able to motivate them and teach them these principles and skills, and many of them went on to become quite successful. Yeah, I, I actually did a counseling practice in the inner city, uh, the, the poorest area, and that was my. The people who were coming to me were coming because the court had sent them because they were the the low man on that pyramid. Right, <laughs> that right. wasn't a very uh, rich place to start. But you're right, and, and and a lot of the times, what what I worked on was taking the skills they were learning there and figuring out how how would that be a job skill somewhere. You know, you're you're actually learning these skills. How do you turn them into the good side? Totally. I mean, think about someone stealing off stuff from a warehouse. They have to learn how to observe, notice what the patterns are, have somebody be a lookout, you know, be like ninjas at night, you know. I mean, all those skills are valuable for other kind of jobs. I used to do that. I used to tell my kids, you know, hey, you could take that same skill and do this with it. It's people coming out of the military. It's the same thing. They often don't realize they have tons of skills for the corporate world, but they don't think of it that way because they haven't worked in a corporation. So that kind of takes us to that place of the success principles. I mean, a lot of the, the success principles you talk about are skills that people are, might have gained at different places, kind of some odd places. So how do you see those success principles fitting? You, you have it as success, but I want to broaden it out to how do you see that as part of having building that thriving life? Well, basically, uh, you know, a thriving life, everyone has to make their own definition of what that is for them. You know, we call it creating your vision of your ideal life. So what what do your ideal relationships look like? You know, what is, are you married? Are you, are you having great sex? Are you traveling? Are you uh, good parents? Are you getting along with your sister? You know, what does relationships mean? How many friends do you have? What do you do with those friends? I mean, I have one woman friend every, around right New Year's, six of them go to Mexico to this health spa for a week. And, you know, do you want to build that into your life? You know, so what does your health and fitness look like? What does your, uh, you know, job, perfect ideal job look like and so forth? So I believe that you should be pursuing those things which give you the greatest joy. And so how I purpose it is that you first have to take 100% responsibility for your life. No blaming, no complaining, no excuse making. Because I, I teach a formula called E plus R equals O. There are events in your life, you respond to those events, that produces an outcome. I give you a chocolate cake, you eat it, you put on a half a pound. I give you a chocolate cake and you say, I don't eat refined sugar and refined flour. Give it to someone else or throw it away and you end up healthier. So it's the same event, two different responses equal a different outcome. If I forget your birthday, if I'm married to you, you could have the thought, my husband doesn't like me, my husband doesn't love me, or you could say, my someone who loves me forgot my birthday. 
different thought produces a different feeling outcome. So basically what I'm saying, you can learn the thoughts and learn the behaviors and learn the imaging techniques of successful people and have more success. Most people spend their time, as I said, blaming and complaining. So once you've taken 100% responsibility and you act as if you're creating, promoting, or allowing everything that happens to you, then we can change it. Because if we created it, we can uncreate it and recreate it. But if we're victims, then we just feel like, you know, hopeless. Next thing I ask people to do is, is identify what is your purpose in life. If it were true that you have a purpose, how would you go about identifying it? And in my book, The Success Principles, there are a couple of ways to do it. The simplest way to explain in a short interview is what we call a joy review. Look over your life and say, when did I have the greatest amount of joy? I have a story in there about a woman named Julie Lapley. Julie, I met her when she was 24 or 25, right around then. And she told me the story that she was going to Ohio State University. <coughs> Apologize for the coughing. <coughs> it's got something caught in my chest there. Anyway, so what happens is she's going to Ohio State University doing pre-veterinary medicine. She wanted to be a vet because she loved animals. What she didn't know about being a veterinarian is you have to study anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, chemistry, all that. She hated it. So she said, I'm not happy. And she spent a day when it was a rainy, drizzly day in a dorm. She said, I'm going to review my life. When was I happy? Because she was miserable. And she realized she was happiest when she was in a leadership role. In high school, she was a you know the senior um, council president, you know, student council president. She was the head of the Girl Scouts when she was a Girl Scout. She volunteered for other organizations and led them. She was a docent at Ohio State when they would bring leadership kids from high school. She would always be part of that. And she said, I love leadership. So she went and said, can I get a degree in leadership? And they said, we don't have one. She said, well, can we create one? Can I take some psychology courses, some persuasion courses, some speaking courses? And I'll do some independent study and I'll work with leaders in the community. So they said, okay. So it took her five years instead of four. She graduated. When I met her, she was in her early 20s. She was leading seminars on leadership at the Pentagon. Hmm. She was a full-time consultant at the Pentagon in her 20s. And now she has a foundation where she teaches young girls and young women, high school, college age, and just out of college, leadership. And she's got a foundation going around the world doing that and raising money. She's had her own TV show on that. So the idea is look at your life and say, when were you happiest? I was always happiest when I was teaching. When I was inspiring people by telling them stories, I was making them laugh by telling them jokes. When I was a, in, when I went to school, I was a leader there. I was a leader in the Boy Scout troop, etc. A high Y in the church. So I realized I got into teaching, and that's that's. And then it became teachers of teachers and all of that. And now I'm teaching all over the world. But the idea is get clear about what your purpose is, because I love what um, Scott. Uh, uh, God, I can't remember his name. Stephen Covey said, said, you don't want to get to the top of the ladder and realize it's leaning against the wrong wall. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are chasing that fame and fortune that we talked about earlier mm-hmm. in terms of success, but they're not really happy. And so I think that's critical. Then now you create a vision of what you want in all the areas of your life. Then you turn each of those into goals. This is where I tell people there's about four or five reasons visions don't manifest. The number one is they never write it down. So it has to be written down. You have research on that. The people who write their goals down are 33% more likely to achieve them than people who just think them. That's an amazing statistic. If you write it down and tell someone else and have them hold you accountable to it, it's 43% more. So all, that's why we have people in mastermind groups with accountability partners, coaches, mentors. Now I've written the goal down. Next thing that happens where it, it keeps it from getting manifested is you don't tell anybody. 
So it's important that when you share your vision, two things happen. Number one, it gets clearer to you as you talk about it. Number two, as people respond to it, it becomes more believable unless you're telling people who want to pull you down to their level. So you've got to find people who are encouraging and supportive. But the mere act of sharing your vision. If Martin Luther King had never given his I Have a Dream speech, nobody would have signed up for the Civil Rights Movement. If Mandela hadn't given his talks, if Gandhi hadn't written his things from prison. So you have to share it so that other people can come forward, support you, encourage you, and actually sometimes become part of your team. When President Kennedy said, we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, they didn't have all the people lined up to do that. But a lot of kids said, I want to go and study astrophysics so I can be part of that team. And, you know, we got it by 1968, eight years ahead of schedule. So the reality is you got to tell people. The other thing that happens is people don't visualize their dream and think about it in a positive way all the time. That's why affirmations, visual, you know, visualizing, vision boards, all of that stuff is really critical because it programs the unconscious. Your unconscious is like the GPS system in your car. What happens is when you have a destination, you put it into the GPS system, it figures out how to get you there. If you don't know how to put it in correctly, it doesn't work. And the way we put a vision into our brain correctly is by visualizing it, closing our eyes, visualizing what it would look like outside of us. What will we see through our eyes, not looking at us on a mountain skiing, but seeing the end of our ski poles and the tips of our skis as we're skiing down the mountain. And then the other thing that blocks people is their limiting beliefs, most of which are unconscious. They don't even know they have them. What I've discovered in the last 20 years when I've been working strongly on beliefs is most of our beliefs about who we are, our competence, our ability, our attractiveness, our intelligence, etc., was formed between the ages of three and eight years old. And so we've got to go back and heal those decisions. You know, I'll just give you an example of um, a, a woman that literally every time she got something she wanted as a kid, something bad would happen to her. And so she decided it wasn't safe to want things anymore. And she made that decision at five. I had a woman that I was coaching on the phone in England uh, about a year ago who um, was totally overamped, overwhelmed, uh, stressed out. And she came to me wanting more success. And I said, I think you got plenty. I said, let's talk about why you're working so hard. And she said, okay. So we went back in time to when she was uh, five, and she was in the kitchen. And her father, during the recession, said, I don't think we can, we're going to make enough money to feed all the children. And she heard that at five. He was just frustrated. But she thought he was serious. And she said, I'm going to be one of the ones he feeds. So she was the perfect kid. She kept her room clean. She made her bed. She got A's in school. She did her homework. She did everything mom and dad said. She ate her peas and carrots and broccoli. And on and on and on. And here she was, 45 years old. She was a vice president of a bank. She was on a board of three or four organizations. She was consulting on the weekend. She was planning her own wedding without a wedding planner. And she wondered why she was stressed out. So... She was still living her life like if she didn't do everything perfectly, she was going to starve to death. Well, we were able to go back and then logically have her adult tell her child that wasn't basically the reality. Dad was just upset. We then go into the future and have her 81-year-old self tell her 45-year-old self everything's going to be fine. You can relax. She resigned from the boards. She hired a wedding consultant, and she's a much happier person mm -hmm. now. So 
all of us have those riding inside of us, you know, and I'm not competent enough. I'm not good enough. Sexuality is bad. It's bad to be spiritual. Or it's bad to whatever, you know, want what I want. Uh, you know, money will corrupt me, you know, that some of the, the religious training people get. And so we've got to heal that. And then the last couple of things we have to do, we have to create a plan. We have to then start taking actions. I teach something called the rule of five. Take five action steps every day toward the fulfillment of your goal. Respond to feedback. Not all actions work. Ask for feedback. You know, you read my book, so you know there's a question I teach everybody that I think really helps people thrive in relationships and health in every area, which is you want to ask this of your, your, your spouse, your boss, your employees, your employer, your children. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate the quality of our relationship or me as a parent or working here, my service, this podcast, whatever? Anything less than a 10 gets a follow-up question. What would it take to make it a 10? That's where the value is. Most people, as you know, Lee, never ask that question because they're afraid of what they're going to hear. And so the, I always tell people, you're the only one who doesn't know. My <laughs> wife and I do this once a week. And if I, don't, if I don't do that, she's told her mother, her sister, her sister-in-law, the ladies at the checkout counter at Gelson Supermarket, everyone knows but me the quality of our relationship. And the weird thing is I'm the only one who can fix it, you know, in terms of what my wife wants. So the reality is that is that I love what Ken Blanchard said. He said, um, feedback is the breakfast of champions. And you've got to be willing to take it. Listen, don't cave in. Don't get mad at the feedback. Just listen. All feedback is not accurate. You know, feedback about your cooking vegetables from your four-year-old may not be accurate. But if you get five or six people telling you the same thing over time, then you might want to take a look at, hey, maybe I need to change something here. Or if you're getting the same feedback over and over, week after week. Um, you know, I've heard things from my wife like, don't interrupt me when I'm telling a joke because you think you can tell the punchline better. I don't care <laughs> if it's the final four. You promised you would do so and so tonight, you know. So, and then I can fix that. And then finally, perseverance. Never give up. You know, people quit too soon. As you know, Chicken Soup for the Soul was rejected by 144 publishers over 14 months before we ever got a uh, publisher. And then it was 14 months after pub date before we hit our first bestseller list. We did five things a day every day for two years. So that's the kind of uh, distillate of the success principles. Now there's more principles than that you can certainly explore with me. But that's kind of the overview of what you got to do. So let's let's back up to one that I, the very first one I think catches a lot of people um, because I've talked about this enough times with people to know that there's a defensive reaction when you say I'm 100 percent responsible for my life. Um, a lot of times people kind of confuse the responsibility with blame that they they say, oh, so I have to be blamed for everything that, that's wrong. Um, and that's not what you mean. So can you kind of clarify the difference between those two yeah. things? Sure. Blame is useless. You know, blaming anyone else, blaming yourself, blaming someone else. But accountability, responsibility is simply looking at, if I did create this, how did I do it so I can stop doing it in the future? You know, did I create my cold by staying up too late, not getting enough sleep and not detoxifying often enough and eating too many fatty foods? You know, whatever. You take a look and see, well, maybe I need to change my diet. If I got a divorce... Maybe I need to look. Did I not come home often enough when I said I would? Did I have an affair? Did I talk too much about other people? Did I not keep my promises? You know, what is it that led up to that? And usually your ex-wives are glad to tell you. <laughs> it's like, uh, but 
the main thing is to look because, you know, everything that you're currently experiencing is a result of something you did or didn't do in the past. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm not responsible that my car broke down. Well, did you change the oil when you were supposed to? Did you rotate your tires? Did you take it in for the service when you were supposed to? People say, well, how can I be held responsible for my cancer? Well, do you have a cell phone next to your head every time you talk? Do you eat, you know, foods that are not organic? Do you Have you given up every resentment of everyone you've ever had? Because we know resentment acidifies the body. And do you keep an alkaline diet? You know, we can go down the list of things that might have caused it. And we're not saying you should feel bad about it. But just notice, stop doing what's not working and don't do it again. Yeah. Because, you know, you see people that are like serial perpetrators of the same self-destructive behaviors. And you have to, you have to stop. What the, here, I tell people there's only three ways to grow. Stop what's not working. Do more of what is working. Try on things and see if they work. And that's pretty much it. One of my favorite uh, concepts I learned a while ago from Steve Pavlina, who wrote, uh, I think it was um, Self-Development for Smart People instead of for Dummies. And he lives his life as a series of 30-day experiments. So someone said to him, you should be a vegetarian. He said, well, I don't want to be. He said, well, how do you know you won't feel better? He says, I don't. He says, well, why don't you dry it for 30 days? So he did, and he felt better. Then someone said, you should be a vegan. You know, they tried it for 30 days, he felt better. Now, I'm not saying everyone should be a vegetarian. I was a vegetarian for 17 years. I was actually sicker during that period of time than I ever was. I need really high, intense protein given my adrenal type, which I am. There's all these um, hormonal types you can be. So the... Reality is that you could try not listening to the news for a month, meditating for a month, doing yoga for a month, getting an extra hour of sleep or let one hour less of sleep and getting up and meditating and you know reading, whatever. The point being, you don't know what's going to work unless you actually try it on. Most people never try it on. And we know that for most um, thoughts, you know, changing your beliefs takes about 30 days of a new thought. We are now getting research out of London that takes about 66 days as a sweet spot for changing a behavior. Behaviors are actually harder to change than your own beliefs. And so uh, I recommend people create four new habits a year. That's one every 90 days. Uh, you could do six if you wanted to do you know, every two months. Most people kill themselves trying to grow because they they listen to something like this and they go, okay, I'm going to do this, 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 and that. And then they overwhelm themselves, and by a month, they're, they're so burnt out by trying to get it all done, they, they don't do any of it. But if you do one thing at a time, let's say four a year, in 10 years, you'll have 40 new success habits. That's radical. Yeah, it's interesting, just that idea of picking something. It's, um, you know, I've often had people, I'll make a suggestion, and they really push against it. And my response is, is there any harm in trying it for a month? Is there any harm in trying it for a couple of months? And and you usually find that resistance somewhere in there is built on that some some limiting belief that they have have come up from somewhere. And so it's interesting you bring that up it, because it, at the same time, I have the arguments about res, being responsible. Uh, they push against taking responsibility <laughs> right. as a way of experimenting. Um, so let's go down. Yeah, because they think because they think it's going to make them feel guilty. Yeah, like I'm guilty that I did it that way. Yeah, I, I used to run parenting workshops a lot, and I would just say the first thing I would say when I ran these parenting workshops was, "You're going to learn some things tonight to do to be a better parent." The tendency is to want to beat yourself up for not having done it before. 
focusing on how you might have hurt your children or, you know, not giving them the best parenting possible. Don't do that. Celebrate that you don't have to do the negative thing anymore. And so responsibility is not about guilt. It's about empowerment. People become more powerful. That's what people want. They just think it means that they're going to be a bad person. Mm-hmm. They're not a bad – nobody's bad. They're just doing things that are self-destructive. One of the things – the story I've used about responsibility is for me, it's kind of like if you're in the middle of a burning house. You know, it's not the time to, to say who started this fire, what's going on. Right. It's how can I get out and how can I get everybody else out. That's taking responsibility rather than looking to do the blame. That's, that's – I'll, I'll steal that from you. I like <laughs> <laughs> oh, so let's go to this equation because I've, I've talked about this equation um, and, and I've, I've quoted you on it. E plus R equals O. Um, there are a couple of places I see confusion. Sometimes people say, oh, so my response will definitely change the outcome. And I always say there are two parts to that, that there's the E plus R equals O. Right. And a lot of t- times people kind of default to E equals O. So can you talk a little bit more about that that equation? I think it's so powerful. Well, go to basic math. 2 plus 2 equals 4. E plus R equals O. If the universe is doing 2, like let's say there's a recession, and I do 2, then I make a certain amount of money. If the world's doing a recession and I do 3, in other words, I work harder, I work more creative, I take an extra job, I join a network marketing company, whatever, then I get a... an outcome that is bigger, like 2 plus 3 equals 5 instead of 2 plus 2 equals 4. So the thing again is, whatever I'm experiencing, I am creating within the context that I live. That's the event, the environment, the reality that exists out there. So whether it's raining on my birthday or whether my husband says you look fat in that dress or whether my boss just fires me or whether I come down with a cold, whatever it is, that's an event. How I respond to that, and there's three responses, my thoughts, the images I hold in my head, and my behavior, which includes what I say and what I do or what I don't do. So basically, I can change. That's the only three things I can change. I can change what I think. I can change what I visualize. I can change what I say and do. And go back to the 30-day experiment. Not every response produces your desired outcome. That's why you have to try things on. Brian Tracy has a wonderful thing he talks about called the law of probabilities. He says, the more things you try, the more likely one of them will work. The more people you meet, the more likely one of them you'll fall in love with. The more books you read, the more likely one of them will dramatically change your life. The more podcasts you listen to, the more likely you'll hear something that could be valuable for you. So, you know, the more sales calls you make, the more likely someone will buy. So basically, we have to try on different responses. Now, the nice thing about you and me is we have studied this, and we are teaching people things that basically work. We, we know that generally this will work. If you're more appreciative than judgmental, you're going to have a better relationship. If you ask questions instead of always talking to people and listen more often, you're going to have a better relationship. We know that. There are some universal principles. If I'm more positive in my thinking, I'm going to get better results in life. We know that salespeople who are positive, salespeople who are happier, have 38% higher sales than people who are not. We know that people who serve others, who find a way to serve, they live longer, they're happier, they get sick less often, and they recover faster. There's research on all of this. So that's why people like you and I study successful people. We read books, we go to seminars, we experiment in our own life. So it's like a coach who's played in the NFL you're going to have more to share with a teenager than someone who never played football before if they want to play football well. So 
basically, um, you know, whoever's listening to this, if you're one of Lee's clients, you know, when he gives you a suggestion, listen to it, try it on. And I, and I think that's true for everybody is, you know, what I say, if, you're cur- if you keep on doing what you're currently doing, you're going to keep on getting what you always got. So two plus two will always equal four. And sometimes the world does one when it used to do two. And so now you've got to do something more to get to stay even. That was what happened for a lot of us in the recession. And so we had to get more creative. We had to work harder, work smarter. You know. And, and one of the other things I always say is, if you learn how to create more value for more people, you're going to be successful in life. So whoever you are, whatever you do, whether it's creating more value for your, if you're a housewife, for your children and your husband, if you're a salespeople for your customers and your clients, if you're a counselor, how can you give more value, learn more skills to be, you know, help people get further faster? All of that is E plus R equals O. And the, most people try to defend their R's, their responses, because they're familiar. It's always scary to do something you've never done before. Let's just be honest about that. You don't know how it's going to turn out. But what you can do is realize that you're scaring yourself by imagining the worst thing. Well, if I do that, my husband will get mad at me. If I don't do this, I'm going to get in trouble. If I think that thought, you know, I might go to hell, whatever. So try it on. You know, just be willing to experiment and try these things on and visualize the positive outcome. I was flying to to a... Orlando on a plane. There was a woman sitting next to me. And she I noticed she was gripping the handles and her, her knuckles were turning white as we were going down the runway in our plane. And I looked over and I said, you look scared. She said, I am. I said, well, I'm a therapist. I was able to tell. Not Anyone could have told. I was messing with her on that part. And I said, would you like to know how to not be? She said, sure. I said, so close your eyes. I said, tell me what you're visualizing. She said, I see the plane blowing up at the end of the runway. I guess she'd seen some news thing recently where that had actually happened. And I said, why are you going to Orlando? She said, I'm taking my, I'm going to meet my grandchildren and we're going to Disney World. I said, what's your favorite ride at Disney World? She said, it's a small world. So I said, imagine you're in Orlando. You're in the little cart, the little floating boat thing. And um, you're with your grandchildren and you're in the middle of it's a small world. And I started singing, it's a small world after all. I've taken all my kids there a million times. And her hands relaxed. Her breathing got softer. Because she was visualizing what she wanted as an outcome, not her horrific outcome. So we have a choice when we find ourselves scared to change the picture, change the thinking. Everything's fine. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to meet my children. We're going to have a good time. Visualize doing that rather than visualize blowing up or not getting there or the plane being late, whatever it might be. So we always have a choice about what we think and what we visualize and what we do and what we don't do. The only people that don't have choice about what they do are prisoners, people in the military, and kids in school. And even they have choice. But but the consequences are pretty radical. Yeah, I was about to say they're, they're, they still have a choice of the attitude they're carrying with them. So even there, there's a difference. You're right on. You're yeah. right on. They do have a choice, too. They can go on a hunger strike. They can try to escape. Mm-hmm. They could go AWOL. Uh, didn't work for that guy that just uh, was in the news the other day. I can't remember his name. It came back from Afghanistan. But the point is that you're right. You always have a choice about your attitude. Mm-hmm. And and I we did a book called Chicken Soup for the Prisoner's Soul. And this one guy wrote me a, a story. He said, you know, I've been, I used to be a complainer and a blamer. And he said, I read your book 
And he said, now I take 100% responsibility for why I'm in prison. I'm the one who committed the crime. I'm the one who got caught. And now I'm teaching this to the other guys on the cell block because I go, why are you so happy? And I told him, because I choose to be. And he said, now I'm like the counselor on the cell block. So, again, you have that choice about your attitude wherever you are. So true. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about uh, – you talked about that woman on the plane. There's a, that fear piece. Can yes. We, uh, the fear – I see that as being such a huge um, – throttling place for some people you know that they can't quite take action and for other people um fear fear tells them that they shouldn't be doing that and and one of my distinguishing things is that that fear is not an avoidance indicator it's it's an importance indicator it's pointing to what's important but you're treating it as an avoidance indicator how does that fit into this uh responsibility piece and the success principles very similar to my metaphor which is uh fear is not a stop sign it's a caution sign yeah it tells you there's something to pay attention to here, and I need to be more hyper-aware, which is true. And then it's called, you know, keep going, pay attention. Here's the thing about fear. Used to be uh, the, the major thing I taught was feel the fear and do it anyway. You know, there was a book on, by that title, and I thought that was a pretty good method. And In fact, Joel Osteen, the TV minister, says, uh, do it afraid. You know, like, don't let fear stop you. However, today, Lee, and you know this, we have technology like EFT tapping, the five-minute phobia cure, that anybody can learn. I mean, I wrote a book called Tapping into Ultimate Success, which was using tapping to overcome any fear or guilt or resentment or stuck place that would come up while you were attempting to put into practice everything in the book, The Success Principles. I worked with a woman named Pamela Bruner, who's an EFT specialist, and I became trained in this as well. And we can tap on nine acupuncture points why we think about what we're afraid of. And my experience is usually in five minutes or less, we can disappear a fear. I mean, it literally just disappears. person's not afraid anymore. I'll bring people up on stage in my seminars who are afraid of speaking or afraid of singing in public. And we'll do about three or four or five minutes of tapping. And all of a sudden, they'll turn around and give a speech. Or they'll play the guitar and sing in front of everybody. One of my uh, clients... I just got a a CD from her. Two years ago, she was in my summer workshop. We did the tapping on her singing. She started singing in local coffee houses, and she just sent me her first CD. And now she's singing all over the Northwest. So five minutes, we disappeared that fear that had been there probably since she was three years old. So there's a lot of techniques, hypnotherapy, psychotherapy. But tapping, I think, is just phenomenal. And I, you know, people can go on YouTube and learn it. I mean, it's not like it's that complicated. And um, so I teach it now in, in every one of my seminars. Which is a good way of saying there are ways to cope or, and deal with that fear rather than just letting it stop you from doing those important conversations. And Absolutely. When the fear is there. See, I, I don't know where I got this, but whenever I re- reach a block, I go, okay, someone's already confronted this. How did they solve it? So I would just go online and say how to overcome any fear. Mm-hmm. And up will come God knows how many websites. And some of them will be tapping. Some of them will be Sedona method. Some of them will be hypnotherapy, whatever. But the point is we do not have to be stopped by fear anymore. It just It's just something that we learned. It's a learned behavior. The only two fears that are natural, according to all the scientists, are falling backwards and loud noises, unexpected loud noises. Everything else is self-created by imagining something bad happening. And we can unimagine it and reimagine it, or we can simply disappear it now. And so five minutes, come on. 
That's a, it's a great uh, way. I, I know the EFT method and, and um, not that I'm trained. I've, I've had a couple of experiences with it and it is something that is just a good way of getting you unstuck. You know, if you're, yeah. if you just can't get off of that, um, it gets you unstuck so that that response thing can change. Uh, one, one of the things that I've noticed about um, this E plus R equals O is that most people don't realize that they are already responding. Yes. You're not asking them to do something di- different to, to respond. They're actually already doing that in some way. Yeah. Well, the word responsibility means ability to respond. Mm-hmm. And I have the ability to change my response. Mm-hmm. So whatever you're currently getting is the result of how you've always, up until now, have been responding to that which is around you, your husband, your job, money, friends, criticism, whatever it might be that's happening in your life. I mean, I have a friend who um, was in a severe auto accident and had traumatic brain injury. And uh, his response was to basically go become depressed. And he just wouldn't even get out of bed. They told him he'd probably never walk normal again. He'd probably never talk normal again. He certainly wouldn't read at the same level. He was a very successful entrepreneur. And he was in this accident that sheared off part of his head and major brain concussion and all that. And so I was touring in Toronto. And um, I was on TV promoting the first edition of the Success Principles book. Now we have the 10th anniversary edition, which just came out, all updated. And I put Forrest's story in there. It's the first story in the book. And what I love about the new book is the first book was all stories about Steve Jobs and famous people that, it, that most people can't relate to. They'd say, like, like, well, Jack Canfield, it could be easy for him. But here's Forrest Willett. And, and, and the point I was making is all the stories in the, in the book now are stories of people who read the first book. Now their life is transformed by actually doing what's in a book. So it's much more accessible to normal people. So Forrest was lying in bed, and he hears this guy on TV say, after the break, we'll be right back with Jack Canfield, who will teach you how to get from where you are to where you want to be. He said, well, I'm kind of sick of where I am. So he, he peeked out from under the covers. He was just laying under the covers all day. His wife was about to divorce him. And he watched. And for whatever reason, he believed me. He got his wife to buy the book. She had her read it to him because he was reading at the fourth grade level at that point. Hired a tutor to teach him to read better. He eventually finished the book after a year. He started putting into practice E plus R equals O. He said it was the hardest thing for him to get because he didn't want to admit it because he thought he was the victim of this accident. He was the victim of his attitude from the accident. Changed everything. Started thinking positively, going out in public. He started to work again. Ended up coming and taking my training, taking my train the trainer program. Now he's a speaker and motivational speaker in Canada, going around not only speaking to people that have had traumatic brain injury, but anyone else. He says, you're all brain injured. Some of you happened externally. Most of you just injured your own brain by thinking any stupid thoughts you think, you know. He's a very funny guy. But the point is, it doesn't matter what your E is, your response, your attitude, as you said, your mindset, and then what are you going to do? Because you're already doing something, and that something is giving you what you want, and you've got to do something different to get what you want. So you're right. People are always already responding. It's like the law of attraction is already working. It's not like, how do you make the law of attraction work? You're already making it work. It only you, you make it work better by thinking better thoughts, being happier, and you know not being judgmental and all that kind of stuff. What you're attracting is already happening. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And someone said the other day, I was talking to someone, they said, you know, if you want to know what you were thinking a couple of years ago, look at the results you have in your life now. That's painful. 
yes, yes, it is. <laughs> I want to just underline one thing you said there because it was really powerful. You said he thought he was a victim of the accident, and I would say the victim of that event. And right. you changed it, and this fits for everybody. He was really a victim of his attitude about that event. Exactly. That's powerful. Exactly. I mean, there was a woman, Heather Walker, uh, Heather O'Brien Walker, which I write about in the book too. I love her name Walker because it's it, in the story. She she was told she'd never walk again. And her uh, husband, uh, or fiance rather, brought the book to her and read to her. When they got to the chapter on visualization and affirmation, she started affirming walking down the aisle with him because it was a fiance. And also um, she visualized it, waiting on the beach. And the most amazing part of that story, Lee, is that she got out of the hospital. She walked out of the hospital a month later. They told her she'd probably come out in a wheelchair and never walk again. And she got blindsided in another accident. Two weeks later, hit her side of the car. Again, her her brain was pushed up against the wind, windshield. And um, back in the hospital, she said, the first morning, I just started visualizing and affirming again. And she walked down the aisle. And I have her story in the book. And then she just wrote her own book about it. So, I mean, again, it's 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 your attitude. Do you believe you can do it? Belief is critical. Um you know, it goes back to why is it that Peter Pan and Wendy, you know, think happy thoughts, wish, you're, you know, the truth has been there forever. These universal principles show up in the Wizard of Oz, you know, think about home, you know. So uh, we just, we have the ability to change our thoughts. That is the greatest gift we've ever been given. We have the ability to change them. We just have to read better books, hang out with more positive people, practice affirmations, Choose to believe a thought that, that would get you where you want to go. A lot of times you say, well, what should I choose to believe? Any thought that will take you in the direction of where you want to go. That's, that's basically it. I, you know, I know we're getting close to the time, and my uh, one of the things I always like to do is is find a couple of things that people can do right off. And you just highlighted a bunch, but are there maybe two or three things that you would say, start with these pieces and build around it? I would say sit down. Take a half hour, put some calming, relaxing music with no words on in the background, and write your vision of your ideal life. You know, you go out five years, ten years, three years, whatever you want. You can do one year, whatever, and say, if I could have whatever I want in those seven areas, what would it look like? The second thing I would say is then make each one of them measurable. Big house on the ocean, well, how many square feet, what ocean? Because the subconscious mind doesn't know what to do. Indian Ocean, American Ocean, Pacific Ocean, Atlantic Ocean. You say big, it doesn't know what big is. People in my seminars will go, I, I want more money. So I walk over to my give them a dollar. They say, good. They go, no, I want more than that. Say, well, how would anyone know? You got to say, I want $3,000. Oh, okay. Now the universe and your subconscious mind know what to do. Your subconscious will figure out how to get you what you want. If you'll visualize and affirm, having an affirm means I'm so happy and grateful that I now have a 3,000 square foot house on Pacific Coast Highway in Malibu by January 31st, 2018. So basically, be very specific, affirm it as if you already have it, close your eyes and see it. And then I would say, make a list of at least three things you could do to get started to move in the direction of getting there. And if you don't know, ask somebody who's already done it. There's a lot of ways to ask them. You can read their book, go to their seminar, watch their podcast, watch them do a TED Talk, 
search online, you know, whatever it might be. Tony Robbins says success leaves clues. And it does in the form of books and manuals and workshops and all that. And the other thing I would say is um, I found this really powerful is gratitude. Spend at least a minute or two a day being grateful. Just look around the room. As I look around my office, I have 3,000 books in this office. I noticed you have a bunch in the back there as well. And, you know, someone once said leaders are readers. And if you go into any house of a rich person, you're going to find a library. And so I'm grateful for all the authors who took the time to write down all this good stuff that I got to learn and use in my life. I'm grateful that Steve Jobs made this Apple computer I'm looking at you. I'm grateful for Alexander Bell, without whom we not even have this. I'm grateful for the fact that, you know, we have lights that let us see each other. I'm grateful that I have glasses and so do you. Benjamin Franklin started that. You know, so there's so much to be grateful for. If you make 100000 a year, you're in the top one-tenth of 1% one of people in the world. Think of that, one-tenth of 1%. One Half the people in the world have no running water. Half the people in the world have no electricity. Half the people in the world live on less than $2 a day. So spend time being grateful. And then I say practice uh, what I call outrageous appreciation. At least thank five people a day for something. Thank five people a day for something. If you do that, you put yourself in a state of abundance and appreciation, then you attract more to appreciate, more to be grateful for. That's basic law of attraction 101. So I would start with that. And I don't mean to be self-serving because if I never sold another book, I'm fine. We sold 500 million chicken soup books. I got about 60 cents a book. You can do the math. So the reality is that I'm going to suggest if you want to do something that's really self-supportive, get a copy of my new book, The Success Principles, 10th Anniversary Edition. Go to Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble, go to your local bookstore. If you go to thesuccessprinciples.com, you can actually then order it through Amazon, through our website. You'll then come back and you can get about $150 worth of free downloads, which includes an hour and a half video of me talking about designing your life. It's an hour of questions that most people ask about the book, so those questions get answered. There's a poster called The Daily Disciplines of Success you can download and print and put on your refrigerator or your mirror. And there's also the first two chapters of the book will be downloaded immediately, so while you're waiting for it to come from Amazon or Barnes & Noble, you can start reading it today, your favorite chapter. Take 100% responsibility. <laughs> All ready to go. <laughs> All ready to go. And uh, you'll also be uh, entered into what we call our 10-Day Success Challenge, where you get an email every day with a three- to five-minute video of me talking about a principle and then a homework assignment to actualize that during the day. And it's like a little mini course that gets you started. And Jack, we'll have that link in the show notes so people can just click and go. If they're on the blog, they're ready Thanks. to go. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, well, and because you, you said I don't mean to self-serving, but if you've got great information, people need to know how to get it, and it's great I information. I agree. I agree. It's like I always feel like I have a treasure map to a gold mine. There's so much gold there. No one person can use it all. Why would I not be telling everybody, here's the map to the gold mine? Yeah, and I'm glad you did because it's, it's impacted my life, and it's impacted lots of others, and it's going to impact people who take advantage of that. Well, thank you. Jack, thanks for being here. I know um, we're out of time, but I sure appreciate you cutting out this time for, for the Thrivology people, and uh, the Thrive Nation certainly appreciates that. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to share. Thank you. listening to the Thrivology podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thrivology.com or at thrivologymagazine.com. 
Remember that Thriveology is spelled T-H-R-I-V-E-O-L-O-G-Y. It's your life. Time to live it. Thank you.